Welcome to the Look Far podcast, Voices from the Wild. Join Look Far Conservation as we talk to conservation leaders from around the world about their work, their life, the challenges they face, and the successes they've had. One of the guys, that he was walking in the forest, in the middle of the forest. There was no hut somewhere near, uh, nothing. And, um, you know, midnight or a couple of hours past midnight. And um, then he heard this sound which he didn't know. And he climbed a tree in the middle of the night. And then, sure enough, six meters up the tree, he found that frog. Really excited today to have Martin Schaefer, the CEO of Fundacion Hokotoko, on the podcast. Alex, Martin really is the real deal, isn't he? Yeah, Barton really is the real deal. He's, you know, on the grounds all day. He is in the action. He's on the front lines of conservation and uh, nature, biodiversity. He sees it all in Ecuador. It's really outstanding. And uh, hanging out with us today, Look Far's General Counsel and Partnerships Director, Ty Harper. Ty, you've gotten to know Martin through LookFar's work. Pretty good interview, huh? Yeah, Martin's a remarkable guy. Uh, what he's achieved in Ecuador and this place that's had so much deforestation is amazing. Being able to stitch together uh, through land purchases, through working with indigenous communities and the national parks, like really a massive area where wildlife can migrate and live and thrive. Um, and that's really down to his and his team's work. And, and Martin individually is one of the more unique individuals that I've met. He really possesses a unique blend of, uh, you know, really diligence and managerial competence. He has these huge reserves that he's looking after in uh, incredibly important ways. But he also retains sort of a, a sense of scientific wonder at all the birds and reptiles and creatures uh, that he's helping to protect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really well said. Yeah, he's, he's kind of a polymath. He can kind of do a little bit of everything. And I think we talk about a little bit of everything. Uh, Alex, if we're ready, why don't we uh, get into it? Yeah, let's get to it. Uh, here with Martin Schaefer, CEO of Fundacion Hokotoko. Martin, great to have you on the podcast. Well, Scott, it's uh, great that I'm here and uh, I'm happy to talk with you about conservation at large and specifically in Ecuador where we work. Yeah, so Hokotoko does incredible work in, in Ecuador. It's, what, 25 years old or, or something around that. Tell me about Hokotoko, what it does, what's going on. Really amazing stuff you guys are doing. So Hokotoko is an Ecuadorian conservation foundation, and it has the model that it protects some of the most critical threatened ecosystems and species on the globe. And we do that in Ecuador because Ecuador is, when you look uh, per area, it's actually the uh, country that has most biodiversity on, on its really tiny size. And so uh, our model is that we wanted to protect those areas. And often the quickest way of doing so is to acquire land and then to hire local people who maintain it, who protect it, um, who act as park guards. And uh, that has been perhaps the most important component of our work. And over uh, the, what, 23, 24 years of our existence, um, we uh, managed to establish 16 reserves that total more than 24,000 hectares or in, in acres, that would be something like 57, 58,000 acres. And um, 
that's one important part, this area-based conservation, if you want to call it like that, a bit of a clumsy way of putting it. Then the other part is to actively restore our habitats and land by doing reforestation or by restoring wetlands. And that has been the second uh, component of our work. To give you some numbers to, to make it somehow visible uh, what that means, we planted 1.6 million trees. And more that sheer number, I think what's good about our program is that these trees were from 140 different native species. And that means that indeed we are not just doing a reforestation or even worse, a plantation, but that we really kickstart the ecosystematic recovery of the forest. And this is particularly important because in parts of Ecuador, there's very little forest left. So let's start with biodiversity. My understanding of Ecuador's biodiversity is there is a lot of it. And the reason is in that northern part of South America, you're at this nexus of species that could migrate southward from North and Central America, and then mix with all of the species sort of coming north into South America, which creates large numbers. I mean, trees, frogs, birds, snakes, orchids, you name it. There's so so much more in Ecuador than you'd find in North America or in Europe. Um, but I, you know, I don't know the numbers offhand. I mean, like like birds, for example. Ecuador is known for its birds, but in terms of species, what what exactly are we talking about here? Yeah, we're talking about a really remarkable diversity at a global scale. And um, Ecuador is, you know, roughly the size of Nevada, but on that area, uh, it harbors 16% of all the birds on the world. That's huge. And uh, it's equally harbors a lot of plants and a lot of amphibians. Um, perhaps in terms of global proportions, the numbers are a little bit lower, but it's still this massive hotspot. And as you say, it's partly the location of Ecuador at the northern part of uh, South America, but it's also that it's terribly diverse because um, you've got those snow-peaked mountain caps at a 6,000 meter elevation, and you've got the uh, rainforest on either side of the Andes. So, and you've even got deserts. Uh, and uh, so you've got a whole gradient of very different climatic conditions that really is the motor to produce these incredible biodiversity. Yeah. And also there's, there's a lot there, but also not a lot left. And I know from my own travels there and from the work that, that Lukfar has done with, with Hokotoko that the Ecuadorian Choco, the sort of Western uh, rainforests, an ecosystem which extends beyond Ecuador to, into Peru, uh, Colombia, Eastern Panama. And in those countries, something like 30%, 25% of the Choco forests are still standing, original forests. But in Ecuador, and I remember our very first conversation where you showed me this map. In Ecuador, it's less than 2%. Still, to me, just hard to even fathom that the situation's gotten so so dire. Yes, and it got so dire so quickly. Within 50 years, Ecuador lost uh, more than 95% Western Ecuador of its forest. So it's basically within, at the most, two generations that you go from an entirely undeveloped country that is... An, you know, forested where living is actually, you know, not, not easy. And you go to an, an area that is in, almost entirely deforested. And that brings with it a lot of challenges and a lot of problems for the people as well. Lack of access to clean water, 
erosion. Um, so, you know, you name it, there are a lot of environmental problems. And you're right. I mean, we are today as Hokotoko and other organizations as well, fighting for the very last remnants of forest. And these forests are often the refuge for a high number of uh, threatened species that occur nowhere else. To give you an example, I remember taking my family up to one of our reserves and my kids were really small and it was our last day. We were heading out uh, to the airport and we drove out of the reserve and then we saw somebody with a chainsaw coming in on a motorcycle. And um, he wasn't going to the reserve, but he was going to just a neighboring area. And um, I looked at it. I saw it. The park guard was uh, driving us. He saw it as well. He kept quiet for a minute. I kept quiet. And then he looked at me and said, well, Martin, I don't want you to lose your flight, but how much time you have left? And I said, okay, let's go. Turn around. And then uh, on the fly, while he was turning around, we made up the story. Okay, I'm the bad guy. I called the police and uh, he is the good guy to warn this neighbor of his that he shouldn't cut down the trees because these trees were really important because uh, it was the territory of a, actually a globally threatened species. So we turn around, uh, we talked to the guy. He wanted us to pay $20 so that he would turn around and we refused to do that. And it was all a theater. Um, and in the end, he left. Um, without cutting down the trees. And, you know, now, more than five years later on, the trees are still standing. And, um, of course, it was a lie. Of course, we were playing a theater. But sometimes you have to do that and you have to stand up and you have to be innovative and try to solve a threatening situation. And um, what I like about this is that it shows how important our local park guards are because they are the ones who really defend our areas. They are the ones who talk to the neighbors. They become the local ambassadors and they do that around all our reserves. And uh, so they are really the heroes. It's, it's not me, it's them. I've always been really impressed with Hokotoko Park Guards. The ones I've met, ones I've talked to, walked through uh, the Cannon Day Reserve with, for example, one guy I think was like 70 years old, but he looked younger than me and was telling me how living in the forest it keeps him young. And uh, the older I get, the more I think about that and think he's probably onto something. I think I need a new new job. But what I'm most impressed with is when you talk about the front lines of conservation, given the extent of deforestation in Ecuador, anytime you have a reserve, no matter what its legal protections or other status might be, you are on the front line. And these guys are there. They're drawn from the local communities there. This is very much their neck of the woods, their neighborhoods, their families, their people with a pair of rubber boots and a machete. And they're facing any number of threats. Some are armed. Some people can be very aggressive. Some situations can get downright dicey. And yet they do such a brilliant job of diffusing situations that could very easily get violent. But they, you know, nearly always manage to navigate those those situations peacefully and and effectively in ways that last a long time. Yes, and they're you're absolutely right. They are very good in that. Uh, we also made the conscious decision to not arm them because it could very easily escalate into conflicts. But at the same time, what you're saying, the front line is is a good metaphor. Uh, on one end. 
don't like it as much because it's very martial and we're talking about war here. But on the other hand, you can say it is a war about the extraction of natural resources. And um, I have seen um, our park guards time and again being so clever about how they go about dealing with these kind of conflicts. And we had one in the Canada area that you mentioned, uh, the Ecuadorian Choco, where there were squatters. And it wasn't really clear where they were exactly, whether it was within our reserve or, or whether it was just adjacent to it. And so first part where I think they acted really well was that they got involved in the neighboring community and they went in with people from the neighboring community. They also wanted to go in with law enforcement, with the police, but you never get a policeman walking four, five, six hours through the rainforest. They just don't do that. And so they arrived at the scene very early in the morning. Um, there were indeed people squatting there. They had built a small little house. It wasn't inside our reserve. It was actually outside of it. And these guys had guns there. And none of our people were armed, of course. And so they looked at it through their binoculars. And then they said, okay, you know, you go there, you talk to them, you just deviate their attention. You know, we go around the other side, we grab the guns, and then we are in control of the situation. And it happened. And afterwards, they talked with the people. Eventually, the invaders left. So it was all solved amicably. And this is an example where, except for the guns, you could say, well, this is kind of a dealing with, uh, you know, among equals. They are all people from rural Ecuador. But also, we are dealing sometimes with large corporations, and they have a lot of different means, and they have a lot of different power to control situations. And um, some of our neighbors got murdered. I mean, we are really talking about um, very, very uh, conflictive situations. And and yet we have been able to steer that very well. Yeah, it really, I don't think it's possible to overstate the level of threat that Hokotoko employees can face while pursuing conservation work. At the same time, I also really don't think that you can overstate just how effective and how successful you've been over the past two decades in creating reserves and in maintaining them, and in protecting them, and in winning over a lot of the, the communities near them. They, they see the benefits, and they share in those benefits with Hokotoko. And it's been an incredible model that hasn't needed to rely on government leadership. You've been able to do it, you know, you're really driven more by sort of by science and by opportunity than by any sort of uh, policy environment in Ecuador that that's steering groups to protect these places. Yes. And I think that is a very effective model. It's kind of taking from the script book of economy that the private sector can often be uh, in many areas more effective than the government can be. And we have to be very careful here, of course, because it's kind of neoliberal. And then there is even the deeper question, should you outsource some of the protection to the private sector? But to give you an example, Ecuador is doing a good job with, uh, they have a wonderful system of protected areas. Um, I think they protect 16 or 17% uh, on, of their land mass, way more than Germany does, way more than, you know, all, all European countries do. Uh, but at the same time, the system is underfunded. We have per area 10 times as many park guards as the, the governmental system has. And so that's a huge value that we are creating, uh, particularly in a very deforested landscape where um, the water created from our reserves is very important for communities downstream. And we have a, a lot of agreements with communities that they can take the water, even upstream. I mean, you know, people need water. So I think 
here's one important point. The other really important point is about what you were saying is science. And I'm a great believer in action and, and not so much in, you know, a lot of studies and desktop and conversations and so on. Uh, but the system of governmentally protected areas, it doesn't match with, with the areas where the threatened species are. The point here really is that this is very easy to understand. Where is that originating from? Well, it is because, you know, we designate national parks in unproductive land. That is not good for economic resource extraction. And so we're not, as a first step, we're not designating it where we need the protection because where the threatened species are. And this is where Hokotoko's model deviate because we consciously said, well, we want to go there because it is where you have the highest concentration and number of threatened species. Yeah, I've seen those heat maps where a tremendous amount of biodiversity in Ecuador, where there's still forests, where there's still intact ecosystems, and even some places where there's not. But when you overlay the most biodiverse areas, the greatest concentration with what's been protected through public policy, it doesn't overlap at all except maybe in a couple of, of places on the um, eastern side. And so Western Ecuador in particular is largely just completely, you know, the, the most important spots, the hot spots are there for the taking unless a group like Hokotoko comes in. And to underline just how much biodiversity, I've told this story enough times to know that I think I'm exaggerating parts of it, but you, you can tell me. And it was the herptologist's that came to one of the reserves with the goal of finding a new species of snake not yet described by science. And this was an area that had been fairly well studied already. So it's not like it was just wide open. I mean, for years, for decades, there had been herptologists there. And yet they were fairly confident that over the course of a week, they probably might find a new species of snake. And they went out and how many species did they find new species the first day they were there? I think found two new species, one snake, one frog. And and yeah, you're right. They were saying that every time we open up a new trail, uh, they will find a new species. And I think the wonderful message is that there is so little known about these forests and about the biodiversity that we are able now to protect. And we don't need to know everything. So here where I'm downplaying a little bit the science part the most important point is to rush in, save the areas, and then, you know, a decade later on, um, you know, some young, cool guy will find wonderful stuff. And, you know, they, these guys are incredible. They were looking for one of the rarest frog in South America, and I think there were only five records. There were very good reasons this species is not recorded, because it lives up in the trees. It's a kind of tree-flying frog that is uh, sailing on its uh, hind limbs from one tree to the next, and so easy to see how it's underrecorded. And one of the guys that he was walking in the forest, in the middle of the forest, there was no hut somewhere near uh, nothing. And, um, you know, midnight or a couple of hours past midnight. And um, then he heard this sound, which he didn't know. And he climbed a tree in the middle of the night. And then sure enough, six meters up the tree, he found that frog and even the tadpole. So the very first uh, record of a reproduction of that species. Um, so you need to have these crazy guys um, who do all the good work and all good stuff. And all I need to do is to protect the area. Well, and can we talk about for a second, climbing a tree under any circumstances can be a challenge. In the middle of the night, even harder. But 
in the middle of the night in the jungle, there's a lot going on around you and climbing around you and flying around you. That I would have loved to have seen that maybe from a distance, but seeing that, that that just sounds incredible. Yeah, I mean, it, it is actually when you come to think of it, and, and you're right of pointing that out. It is incredible because while you climb the tree, there will be a lot of species falling down on you while you climb it because you you stir up the tree, you make movement, uh, the foliage moves, and so on. And the times I've been climbing trees in the rainforest, you know. You get hit by scorpions and a lot of stuff you don't want to be hit by. Um, and doing it in the middle of the night uh, where you don't even know where you're really crawling up to, it's it's actually quite adventurous. Yes, I, I can give you another good story that is uh, going back to the roots of Hokotoko. Um, we started out from mainly a bunch of friends and biologists who had been roaming in, in South America and the forest for some of them for decades. And um, uh, one of them had found a very rare bird and he shot it as a collection for a museum. And the bird didn't fall down and he searched it in the ground and didn't find it. And said, well, it must have stayed up there somewhere in the tree. And so he climbed up the tree only to find that while he was eventually going above a big limb, there was a pit wiper uh, and, and they are venomous, just staring at his face. And, you know, this is what, um, may happen to you when you climb a tree and you don't even have a way of knowing or seeing. Yeah, pit vipers. And there's not a anti-venom clinic nearby or easily accessible. Yeah, that sounds crazy. But now you have to enlighten me though. So when you say shot the bird, the idea was to collect it as a specimen. So why do they do that? Well, you have to get a knowledge of what kind of species you find there. And by now, you know, we have wonderful birds of Ecuador and you know every single species and you know how it looks like. But this wasn't the case 40 years ago. There were tons of birds that weren't known. Maybe not tons, but there were a number of species that were not known, uh, including the Hokotoko emperor, hence our name uh, and hence even our origin. We, we started uh, from an excursion that found this strikingly different emperor, a very large bird. It's like an avocado on stick that was hopping around in the, in the bamboo undergrowth. And um, nobody had ever seen it. No scientist had ever seen it. At the same time, locals were cutting down the forest. So you were hearing the chainsaws, and then the people were seeing this wonderful new bird, and they had a photo, and they showed it to the locals and asked, well, you know, do you know what this is? And they were saying, yeah, sure, that's a hokotoko. So, of course, the locals knew it, as they always do. And, and they knew it by the name because that's the sound that, that it does make. Um, but I think what this story shows is first of all from our very start we had this intimate connection with the land we are protecting the land because it was under threat because it was cut down um going back to your question so you have to have some specimens in museums not a lot but you need to know what a species looks like and you need to be able to compare that then say to another bird that is found 200 kilometers away looks slightly different but not really or maybe and then you need to be able to compare directly side by side yeah, and and knowing the way Hokotoko has used science to guide it in terms of where else it should go within Ecuador, what else is worth protecting. Something really exciting, which was over the past year, we've we've been talking for several years actually about a project opportunity, uh, a chance for Hokotoko to do something bigger than anything it's ever done before in the Choco, in this area that since World War II has lost. 98% of all of its original forest. And yet when you go and visit, by the way, at a human scale, it doesn't feel like that. It, what's 
still there is an awful lot. You're not going to walk through it or around it on your own very quickly or very easily. It's not like it's just some backyard behind some house. It's a huge area and probably the largest area of pristine forest that could be acquired and could be protected is something that Hokotoko is now moving to do. And I know everything's not totally finished yet, but to the extent you're able to share and kind of describe what this opportunity is, what it means for Hokotoko, what it means for Ecuador's biodiversity, for the world's biodiversity, I'd love to talk about it because as folks who are familiar with LookFAR's work know, LookFAR and Hokotoko worked together last year to try and raise awareness to explain the possible impact here and to raise funds to support Hokotoko in, in doing it. So it was a real exciting thing to work on. Yes. Uh, so really, uh, LookFAR and you, Scott, and your team have been tremendously helpful for us in our outreach to highlight the plight of the Choco on one end and this incredible opportunity on the other end to double the size of all the area that we protect, not only in the Choco, but in general in Ecuador. And it has been really so heartening and a huge joy for all of us to see the worldwide support we got from, you know, many, many different individuals, um, many of them hadn't even been in Ecuador. Some of them knew us, had visited our reserves, um, but many didn't. And also from companies and other organizations. And um, it has been a huge show of trust. And um, that was very heartening. And so um, what we are trying to do is we want to increase the size of our existing reserve there. And we were um, really able to do a lot. Uh, we almost quadrupled it in four years. Uh, so it started out with about 2,000 hectares, and now we are almost at 8,000 hectares. We want to further increase it dramatically and thereby link it to two neighboring protected areas from the government. And that would create, in general, an area that is larger than the size of Yosemite National Park. And what is really remarkable about that is on that area, we would be able to protect the entire gradient from sea level to 5,000 meters up in the Andes. And that is really the kind of protection and the kind of initiative we need going forward, we Hokotoko, but also we as mankind, in order to achieve climate adaptation. Because by protecting a very large gradient, species can move up with increasing temperatures. And, and some do already now, and some will do in the future. Think about, say, lizards. Uh, they need the external temperature. Um, so presumably, they have a very narrow niche of temperature that they can tolerate. And so the warmer it gets, the more likely they will move upslope. So it is important to be able to protect that entire gradient. Um, and uh, what is very rewarding here is also that we have seen a lot of support from uh, local communities and that we now have also a means or are developing means and ways for them to benefit from it because long term it needs to improve the livelihoods of the local people because otherwise uh, you know they will not see the benefits of conservation but climate change and the offsetting of carbon emissions provides a way even for communities who currently cannot afford the protection of their own forest. Very often these communities need the forest because their culture 
particularly of indigenous communities, their culture is centered on the forest, but they don't have any economic choice to protect them. And so what they do is they sell forestry rights and are typically left in a deep corporate landscape. And now carbon offsetting is providing a way for them to afford of making a choice. It's not that we want to prescribe them to protect the forest. They should do with their own resources whatever they want to do. But what we want to achieve is that they have means of choosing. Yeah. And I think what to me really distinguished this project, there were, there were a couple of things. I mean, you have the big backdrop of just so little of the original forest is left. And without dramatic action, it's hard to see any of it surviving over the next several decades. There's not going to be some critical point where everyone's like, oh, all right, hang on, we're down to 1%, let's stop. Uh, it just will all go. The second is the the biodiversity, and in particular, the um, level of endemism, you know, species found nowhere else in the world. And, you know, uh, two weeks ago, we had Mark Plotkin uh, on the podcast. And of course, Mark's whole career are all is all about figuring out medicines and other types of, of healing remedies you can make from things growing in the Amazon, growing in the forests. And the more that's, that's cut down, what cures to cancer, to coronavirus, to whatever, are we potentially, you know, trading for some particle board that can go into some you know, discount furniture somewhere. I mean, it's, it's hard to understand, but, but easy enough to happen. But what I thought was really compelling about it was you had two existing Hokotoko reserves already in this area that are of decent size, but not huge. There's an indigenous reserve. And then I think there's one of the few government protected um, areas that is legitimately rich in, in biodiversity. And they're all kind of clustered. And then this uh, land acquisition, which I think is around 57,000 acres, runs between them and basically allows them all to connect up. And I remember when we were talking about it and we were asking, well, well, all right, so let's add this up. What What's the size of this contiguous protected area we're creating? I mean, great that it has this nearly 5,000 meter altitudinal you know, gradient, but it, it's going to be this totally contiguous area protected by Hokotoko. We, we know they're going to do a great job. So what what's the size? How does this compare? And we came up with a figure and I'm going to use um, acres because of my Americanness, but I think it was around 750,000 acres. So I started to think, well, what else is 750,000 acres? And poking around, poking around, and uh, folks who know me know I'm a major enthusiast of the national parks and centered on Yosemite National Park, which is about 750,000 acres. And I just personally loved the idea that Hokotoko is going to create a Yosemite-sized protected area in arguably the most imperiled and the most biodiverse region in the world, or at least you know one of the top, what, five or something like that. Just a remarkable opportunity. And even so, in my mind, it's hard to find a more compelling story. But even so, there's so much out there that is being done that needs to be done. Being urgent, for example, rarely distinguishes you among causes because there are very few non-urgent good causes out there. The support that Hokotoka was able to generate was so inspiring and so heartwarming and took a lot of work. And it, it really just shows how no amount of support going forward is, is too little because the work continues. 
uh, even after fully acquired and after everything's integrated, there still are challenges to maintaining the integrity of the reserves, to conducting good science, to sort of deepen your understanding of them and, and so forth. So there's still plenty of opportunities to be a part of this. And when this infernal pandemic ends, a chance maybe to go down there and climb a tree in the jungle in the middle of the night and uh, see what we're, see what it's really like, like we were talking about earlier. But anyway, Martin, I mean, just so exciting to be on this side of it. I know there's still a lot of really important work to be done, but it's 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 been amazing to have played a small role and uh, really anxious to see kind of you know what comes what comes from uh, from this point forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think you you mentioned a couple of issues. Uh, first of all, uh, very much true. We as a society, we are destroying these rainforests for cardboard production. You know, it's kind of the cheapest product that uh, possibly you could uh, turn a rainforest into. And you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, by current estimates, about one third of our medical products are somehow plant or nature derived. Uh, and so as such, uh, we are destroying a treasure, a trove that we will need. And also we are destroying the very fabric of life. I mean, the integrated interactions among myriads of species in a rainforest. Um, really will also going forward give us some of the best examples how nature evolved in order to cope with constant environmental change. And we're destroying that as well. And uh, you were mentioning the timeline, decades. Now, yeah, the Ecuadorian part of the trickle will be gone in, eight to, uh, in five to eight years. So uh, you're right, timeliness is not an argument per se, because you know there are so many timely uh, actions that are required. But what I would like to focus on just for a second is, you know, you're rightfully saying, you know, we were all so much encouraged by these warming uh, responses of the general public, of a lot of people, individuals, organizations. And I think that is something that I would like to emphasize because I feel that often conservationists are using a very passive and defensive way of spreading the message. It was even in uh, one of your podcasts uh, where, you know, rightfully people were saying, well, you know, there are so many headwinds. Uh, and um, that is true. There will always be headwinds. But I think what we as conservationists really also need to focus on is the positive message of what we can all achieve by working together. You know, it couldn't be done without the parkouts on the ground. It couldn't be done without Lookfar or, or Scott or whoever who is helping us to amplify our voice. And it couldn't be done without people who are believing in us and who help us to do our work and pay a park out salary. But jointly, there is so much we can accomplish. And uh, there is, I, I think, you know, there is so much of an empowerment in here that we in the conservation scene very often are not developing sufficiently well. And I can give you another example from, from that area. Uh, you were mentioning the, the pandemic, and uh, yes, it hit us hard. We, all of a sudden, we didn't have any tourists. And typically, in a, in a normal year, we would have about 6,000 visitors to our reserves. And last year, you know, we had visitors for the first two months, and then we didn't have any. And so we have a cook in that remote area, and uh, she's a very nice young woman coming from this rural part of Ecuador where it's very difficult for women to find empowerment. It's a typical machism society and um, she didn't have any work anymore. And so, you know, we were saying, well, wait, there are these two magnolia trees that only occur in and around our reserve and they are 
critically threatened. The known world population for each of them is below 30 individuals. So really, we should do something about it to avoid their extinction. And then um, I said, okay, yeah, let's try to um, apply for a project to do targeted reforestation uh, with these two magnolia species. And funny, our cook, she will do the reforestation because maybe she is good with plants. And it is perfect with plants. And she is now reforesting these two magnolia species. Uh, she has easily multiplied the known population by planting out 200 seedlings of one species and so on. And she is telling the park arts, oh, you know, I found another tree in the jungle. So here you need to climb up and collect the seeds up there because I can't raise a single seed and so on. What this story shows is a lot about resilience uh, on her side, being you know thrown from one job to the next. But it also shows something that should encourage all of us. Here's this poor woman from rural Ecuador without any education. And she almost single-handedly is saving two species of trees from extinction. No, that that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And I, I mean, I, I'm just nodding my head vigorously and I couldn't agree more. So much of conservation work can be done with just, if you have uh, enthusiasm and some energy and a little bit of free time and are willing to take a few risks and try and do things, you can have a positive impact. Uh, Look Far started with no real budget or direction or know-how or <laughs> much of anything, but uh, out of a desire to want to to be involved and to do things at a very tangible level, at a very close to the ground level, working with people who shared that that commitment to trying to solve a problem that if you if you zoom out and you look at it globally, it's overwhelming. But if you go into that reserve, you know, like that you mentioned, the two trees. All right, we can do we can do these two trees, and that is significant. That's an accomplishment. That should be and will be written up and and shared. And if you reach enough people with those kinds of stories too and inspire others to act in similar local ways, you start to have a global impact, even though your own work might not extend much beyond you know a couple of uh, square kilometers in either direction. But I do want to pivot, Martin, because as people might have um, noticed, you're not from Ecuador, are you? I'm not from Ecuador. No, I'm uh, German. Um, and uh, I somehow found my place uh, to work on in Ecuador. Yeah. Tell me about your your story. How did you find your way to Hokotoko? Where did you study? Where did you train? What brings you to this type of work? Well, Scott, I think like so many people, uh, I have been always since childhood been tremendously interested by animals. Um, I just thought, you know, this is the coolest thing there are. There is a saying, you know, boys get seven and after that they only grow. Um, and probably, you know, I'm, I'm just stayed at age seven and my mental age seven. And um, I thought, well, you know, I, I like to become a biologist and uh, I like to work on birds. And so that's what I did. And I did a PhD. And, you know, after my PhD, for the first time, I felt, well, maybe I should do something useful in life. And then I... Um, looked up with my uh, then girlfriend and now wife a number of projects and they were you know spread out on the globe uh, Cambodia uh, and uh, whatnot and in the end uh, we um, decided to settle on Ecuador 
and we started to work on threatened species in Ecuador in those reserves of uh, Fundacion Jocotoco. So that's how, you know, 20 years ago, I came into contact with uh, Jocotoco. And then at the same time, back then, it wasn't clear how you could make a living out of that. And then I returned to academia and, um, you know, started to try to become a tenured professor with all, you know, the chores and stuff. And, um when I finally got offered my dream position um, of being a chair in ecology and evolution, uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should do, again, something more useful in my life. Uh, and so it was kind of a life decision. And um, perhaps if you can, if you want to put it into a punchline, then uh, it was that the president of the university said, well, Martin, great that you're here. And, uh, you know, I, uh, within four years, I want you to lead one of these $5 million research projects. And I said, well, you know, fair enough. But if I only become a fundraiser now, I should do and become a fundraiser for something that's really, really worth it. And that's conservation. Because otherwise, you know, I would know why all the things um, become extinct, but I would have very little real-world impact. <laughs> that's fantastic. It's fantastic. I always like stories about people who leave really good situations to go do something that they know is going to have a, an impact, but takes a certain amount of faith that stepping out and doing this won't end in, you know, regret, disaster, whatever. And yet, and that's rarely the case. It's, it's, these are always examples where people go out and do outstanding work. And for, for folks listening, I mean, Hokotoko is one of those just absolutely brilliant, very locally focused deeply impactful organizations. And a big part of its effectiveness is Martin's leadership. Uh, I get to look at lots of conservation nonprofits all over the world. And Martin really is truly first rate in how he has guided Hokotoko and, and helped it grow and really driven its ambition already high to even higher levels. So, you know, we're going to have to do this again uh, on the ground in Ecuador and hopefully soon. Uh, don't give me too much credit. I mean, uh, it's it's always a teamwork. If it is successful, it's always a teamwork. And um, uh, then just to answer one other thing, which I think was very insightful, what you said, when you do such a decision, uh, and it's kind of a life decision, you don't have certainty, you, you jump into an abyss, uh, and you don't know how it will end. But somewhere inside of you, you kind of know intuitively that this is, looks as though it's the right decision. And what I can only you know, say to every listener to of the podcast, um, if you ever come to this situation and crossroad in your life, then listen to that inner voice and do the jump uh, because it will be rewarding in so many ways that you couldn't foresee. Yeah. No, I agree. I absolutely agree. And uh, I think that's a good way to pivot to the three questions. And as mentioned, you know, there's no right or wrong answer here, just sort of what comes up, what comes to mind specific to your work and the Hokotoko's work. Question number one is, what gives you hope? Yeah, I'd like to answer with uh, your congresswoman, um, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, because she said, and I think this is, you know, wise beyond her age. Um, and I know it may sound derogate, but it's not meant like that. Um, she said, hope is nothing you have. Hope is something you create through your actions. And this is so much true for myself. I don't, for a long, long time in my life, uh, before I made this life decision, I had somehow the hope, you know, somebody will do something about the climate crisis. Somebody will do something about the biodiversity crisis. 
But eventually, you realize, as you grow up, maybe beyond the mental age of seven, that there is no somebody in that sentence if it's not yourself. And you have to become that beacon of light and of hope and of the action you want to see in the world. You can't externalize hope. So if you're saying what gives me hope, then what gives me hope is these kind of uh, stories like this uh, uh, woman who was saving two species of trees. Um, I give you other examples of uh, a park guard who um, said at one point, oh, our community needs help with uh, collecting plastic. And we said as Hokotoko, okay, yeah, we can give you $1,000. What can you achieve with that? They collected 127,000 plastic bottles along the Pacific shore. I mean, that's a pretty good investment for $1,000. And, uh, and what's more, um, he then said, well, you know, there are a couple of uh, marine turtle nests. Um, I don't recall how many it was back then. Uh, it was either 13 or 17. So a low uh, two-digit figure. We said, okay, yeah, go for it. And, um, you know, within uh, eight years, uh, it's more than 230 turtle nests of all four marine turtles. And this year we had more than 15,000 turtlets actually getting into the ocean. And... You know, it's all the action of a single person. So what gives me hope? That we can inspire people. We can empower people. And they do it. It's not me, Martin, telling him what to do. It's him. And we have this wonderful multiplier effect. So I have a lot of hope because we can be very powerful if we just, you know, surpass our state of apathy and, and lethargy and actually jump to action. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Question number two. So Martin, we've known each other by my count five years. So suddenly 10 years doesn't seem like a huge amount of time. But if you could look ahead 10 years, what's something in the world that you'd like to see? I like to see that we don't have another lost decade. I think we had a lost decade looking 10 years back. Everyone was excited, what, 210 about the IT targets. And you've got all these conferences and congresses and a lot of nice, lofty aims and, and wonderful speeches. And honestly, very little came out of it. We knew back then that we needed to act. And we, as mankind, didn't act and fell really short of acting. I mean, there were a lot of good examples, but in, in general, not enough. So looking ahead 10 years from now, I don't want the same thing to happen again. I think we are now at a moment where corporate and the private sector are realizing that we can't just do business as usual. And so we really need to step up financing of conservation. We need to step up our own contribution as individuals towards conservation. And you can do it wherever you want, in your backyard, you can do it in Ecuador, you can do it elsewhere. Um, but what I want to see is in 2020, that we all start to act. I'm very skeptical of, again, the same thing happening again. We've got lofty goals, 30 by 30, and other big agendas of planting trillions of trees. But um, if we are not careful, we will fall short again. And we have no excuse. It's our generation right now can have a tremendous impact of whether we are yet again heading to another mass extinction on the world. And, you know, just for anyone who doesn't know what a mass extinction is, the last mass extinction was when the dinosaurs left the uh, planet. And it changes life forever. And it will change life for future generations of humans or, or whatever species you look like forever if a lot of the species on our planet will go extinct. And I'm not saying we only have 10 years, but we don't have any cushion to not act. So what I want to see is really 
an empowerment of civil society, of the private sector, of governments as well, to step up and just stop talking and start acting. Mm -hmm. Martin, the third question, you may have actually already answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How can people help? People can help in a myriad of ways. So first of all, if you like nature, come out to Ecuador and visit our reserves. And then you're going to see what we can achieve, we as a small organization can achieve, and what we at large can achieve. So that's number one. Number two, for the people who can't travel or who don't want to travel owing to the pandemic and stuff like that, you can help us uh, and you can help us in different ways. You can volunteer by spreading our message, our voice, like uh, Look Far helped us a lot last year. Um, you can come to our reserves and volunteer and work on conserving and protecting uh, threatened species. You can help us reforesting trees that capture carbon uh, restoring wetlands that are also very important carbon sinks. And lastly, you can help us through donations, of course, or through linking us um, to the private sector who can finally start developing sustainable supply change. And we can link them to cacao producers in Ecuador, coffee producers in Ecuador. So there are limitless opportunities to get involved and to do something. And of course, it doesn't have to be in Ecuador. Everywhere where you can have that effect, it counts. That's great. And absolutely, I mean, I'm coming to Ecuador. Look far as coming to Ecuador. We, we've, we've tried before and these major world events keep intervening and keeping us on the ground. It's, you know, for the past, what, uh, year and a half now, a little more. But uh, as soon as we can, uh, we're, going to, we're going to do it. And... I think this is a great record of Hokotoko's work, its impact, and in particular, Martin, you know, great to see you know, your energy, your ambition, understanding more why you're doing this, where you came from, why it's so compelling and important. And I think anyone who does come to Ecuador, does visit one or more of the Hokotoko reserves, will quickly, I think, share your level of conviction and your enthusiasm. And really, if I might say, you know, optimism in the face of incredible threats. I mean, your whole job is basically confronting one threat and one problem after another. And yet every time we talk like this, you are brimming with optimism. And it's really cool to see. I love that we were able to share it on this podcast. And uh, we are going to have to do this again from the field. And maybe have some park guards and um, and some your your cook and others uh, come and join us and uh, hear their stories as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, as you were saying, they are the ones who are out there, uh, and and they are the ones who are living it day in day out. And I think once you see that, you know, from my perspective, from your perspective, from being there, there is no way you cannot be optimistic. And uh, we see these tremendous effects, you know, wildlife coming back where uh, they hadn't been before, jaguars, uh, pumas, speculative bears, um, harpy eagles, mountain tapirs, you name it. Um, all the large animals uh, that typically may not well be protected in small reserves, all of them are rebounding. And there isn't, you know, anything more joyful to see and witness that within a couple of years, we were able as an organization Martin, thank you so much. 
Hokotoko, uh, for those who want to learn more, the website is hokotoko.org. And that's, help me here, J-O-C-O-T-O-C-O.org. I'm dizzy just trying to say that. But look it up, look around, check it out. Thank you so much, Martin. Let's do this again. Yeah, well, thank you, Scott, for organizing uh, this uh, podcast. It's an inspiration uh, for me and certainly for many others. Um, so, yeah, I'm very thankful. Look Far is a U.S. 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to defending wild and wondrous places and working with the people living in and among them. More at lookfar.org.